out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 117th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. And it is being brought to you by me, your host, the Wolf Mac B from lovely Amsterdam. And I will be joined, as usual, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of America, Gary Action Jackson. And I am loving my time here in Amsterdam, folks. I really appreciate everybody making us feel so welcome and and supporting me, supporting the show. Every time I mention the show, people love it. They download, listen to it. Our numbers are growing from here, so I really appreciate that. I love my time in London, but it was great to be able to move on after three and a half years. And, hey, it's not like all of a sudden the Rolling Stones are going to be from Rotterdam, you know, or something like that. The DNA of, of my love of rock and roll was all still very, very British, right? Very English indeed. But it is good to be able to move around, and I know that I will be back there again one day, sooner or later. And we appreciate you listening to last week's show on one of the all-time great British bands, Led Zeppelin. It's hard to believe that Houses of the Holy is turning 50. What an amazing record. What an amazing turn for the boys in Led Zeppelin. And we appreciate Ryan Connell, the executive producer and creator of House of the Dragon, for coming on and sharing his memories of Houses of the Holy growing up. So it was a Houses show, right? House of the Dragon, talking about Houses of the Holy. But we thank Ryan for that. We wish him all the best success. Please go ahead and check that one out if you have not already. This week, we actually go back to America for a band that got big, a band who was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, didn't make a big dent in England, but was actually pretty big here in the Netherlands, especially for the album we're reviewing today. We're doing Cheap Tricks at Budokan, which of course spawned the big live version of I Want You to Want Me, which is exactly how he said it, and we finally figured out why he said it that way. We're going to talk about that here on the show. Interesting history with this one, in that it was only supposed to be released in Japan. Cheap Trick had amassed a bit of a following in Japan, and so they wanted to do a live album to thank the Japanese people. Well, then, thanks to I Want You to Want Me being featured on a B-side of their new album, Heaven Tonight, people heard that. And then import copies were being shipped from Japan to the United States. Finally, they kind of figured out, hey, we might want to release this in America. And it's a good thing they did, because it went triple platinum in America, went five times platinum in Canada. I'm fairly certain it's their biggest seller of any of their albums ever. And it has the iconic classic versions of some of their biggest songs, especially I Want You to Want Me, which was not much of a hit in America until the live version came out. We're going to get into all that here on the show. First, we need to do just a little bit of business here, folks, and that's to remind you all that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and you can go to pantheonpodcast.com to learn about the 100 or so shows, all very music-oriented, really all genres, something there for everybody, and we're proud to be a part of that. And of course, we have to thank our amazing sponsors, rarevinyl.com. Guys, rarevinyl.com are based in England. They've been doing this for about 40 years, and they have a quarter of a million items in stock, so I don't care if you're looking for old vinyl records, seven-inch singles, CDs, tour programs, posters. They have so many amazing pieces in there, and they take such good care of it, and they ship all over the world. And if you find something you like and use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, use it and save yourself 10% off your orders. Go ahead and make a great big one and save as much as you can. Use podcast. I've done it, and I'll hopefully do it again here real soon. Now, back to Cheap Trick. I admit that I didn't know Cheap Trick that well. You only know about four or five Cheap Trick songs. I think most rock fans are like that. But what I knew, I liked. So now I go back to listen to this album, an album that I hadn't listened to in about 30 years, and I just, I appreciate it more. It's got a nice punk 
ethos, nice straightforward pre-New Wave thing. Pretty American. And you can tell that the Japanese crowd is just digging it. It just sounds like a fun time. And it just takes me back to my childhood. Kid growing up in the 70s and 80s. I Want You to Want Me and Cheat Trick, that was on the radio. You just know these songs. And it's fun. It's a good time. So that's what Jackson and I are doing this week. We're having a little fun. So I was happy to review this one. It was fun. It was a blast, actually. Most of these albums I know back and forth, or I go back to them and find out, yeah, they weren't as good as I remember them. But this one was pretty pretty fun. It was pretty great, I think. Is it one of my all-time favorite albums? No. But it's got a special place in history, and it's a fun listen. So hopefully you have fun listening to us. We're Mac B and Action Jackson going over cheap tricks at the Budokan here on The Wolf. But getting into Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, there's actually quite a bit to talk about on this one, man. Not that we're huge Cheap Trick fans, not that they're this enormous band, though they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I guess, at this point. But I don't know. I mean, Rick Nielsen likes to joke we're everybody's sixth favorite band. I, I feel like they're more like everybody's 14th favorite band or something like that. Like, everybody knows a couple of your songs, man. But yeah. you know, you're, you're not that high up in the register, generally speaking. But given when we grew up, in the late 70s through the 80s, into being of age in the 90s or whatever... Cheap Trick was part of the fabric of rock and roll. They had a couple big hits. They played roles in some of the movies that kind of helped define our childhood. Mm -hmm. And their sound is pretty damn good. It, some people may say it's kind of simple, but I think it's killer, really good rock and roll, man. And between listening to this album again, which I hadn't done probably since we were in, high, in college together, and, and just doing some research on these guys, you know, I... I got more respect for Cheap Trick than I had going into this. I, I would say the same thing. I, I didn't, I've never been a huge Cheap Trick fan. I mean, again, like you said, it's it's somebody you listen to also. Like, yeah, they're in the mix, but I would never say, I would never be in the record store saying, I have to have a Cheap Trick record. They're right. on the radio enough. The, the big one from here is obviously, I want you to want me. That was the, that's probably when people, when you say Cheap Trick, that's what people think of. Like, that's I want the you big to single. Yep. Correct. Yeah, and I know that they had, I was trying to look for the year, they had that song, The Flame, in, it was 87 or 88. I think it was, was 88, yeah. And okay. it went to, like, number one. I mean, it was a huge hit for them right. when and we were in high school. Them, right, and that kind of brought them back into, oh, yeah, I remember those guys. Didn't they have those a couple of hit records? So that, I think that's how I got originally introduced to them, and it was like, no, they the, the that was kind of a like a syrupy uh, song written for them. They didn't write that song. So it was a huge hit, but not, not really it, one. I don't think they're super proud of that, but I, that definitely brought them back into the public consciousness, but you're right. Looking at this record, this is uh this story is almost better than the record itself. Kinda. Yeah. And you think about you know, you hear about Wayne's World, you know, ten ten CDs live at Budokan. They're talking about cheap trick live at the Budokan, Correct. right? Of course, yeah. he's Canadian, uh, Mr. Wayne, Mr. Mike Myers, and they're actually kind of bigger in Canada than they are in the mm -hmm. US. This sold three million in the US, triple platinum, but it's five times quintuple platinum. In Canada, you know, just kind of a big deal. And and they're from nearish Canada, right? They're mm -hmm. from Chicago. I think Robin Sanders from uh, Wisconsin, which, you know, you're getting up there towards Canada, sure. But they're, they they hit the charts very well in Canada. They, they hit number one, whereas they maybe didn't hit quite that high from America. But you're right, you know, they kind of had that comeback in the late 80s when a lot of bands that we liked in the 70s were trying to kind of 
reformulate themselves like Alice Cooper's back and stuff like poison. Well, it's because he's got, you know, people to help write for him. And it was the same right. with, with the flame. Like, you know, they have Holly Knight writing for them and they, they have, they said, okay, you guys can come back, but we're going to make sure we get some outside songwriters in here. And Tom. P- Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Peterson, the bass player and probably the major co-writer next to Rick Nielsen, who is their guy, right? He he basically Mm -hmm. writes all the songs or co-writes every single one of them. What was interesting to me was, except for Ain't That a Shame, which is a Fats Domino song, he wrote every single song. Tom Peterson only gets one co-write on the live album, which is interesting because Tom, he kind of co-wrote like half the songs on In Color. Uh, and Heaven Tonight was the, the studio album with Surrender on it, which came out right before this did. But only one song gets a Tom uh, Peterson co-write. Everything else is pure Rick Nielsen, which mm. I don't know if that contributed to Tom leaving not too long after this. Tom was on Dream Police. They did uh, another album after Dream Police. It was all shook up. But he left after that, and he kind of said, look... We were doing 300 gigs a year and we're putting out two albums a year and we're recording them in like two or three weeks and we go right back out and we gig out. And it's like, we've been doing this for like five years now. It was, it was time. I need it out, you know? And, mm. and, and he went and worked with a lot of other uh, 
different people after that. And, and he he did some work with our buddy, with our fellow Pantheon podcaster, Carmine Apice, toured with him in 1982 after he got off like the cheap trick train there for a little while. But, you know, he, he left and then he came back for Lap of Luxury. He came back for the flame and they mm. put him right back on the cover, which is another weird thing and a funny thing about Cheap Trick. Yes, mm-hmm. the first album has all four of them on the cover. Mm-hmm. But then after that, there's a run of a few albums where Pretty Boy lead singer Rob Zander and attractive bass player Tom Peterson, they're on the cover. Right. And then on the back cover is major weirdo Rick Nielsen and the kind of heavy set with glasses and an odd mustache, Bunny Carlos, the, the great He's a fantastic drummer. Right. His real name is Brad M. Carlson, uh, mm. but they changed that to Bun E. Carlos. And I guess he uh, he had gotten to Rick. Rick had been around uh, Chicago for a long time. Tom and Rick kind of formed, I think they had a band, Grim Reaper, which eventually they turned into Cheap Trick. They had Bun E. And then they eventually got Robin Zander, who has an amazing voice, and he has a hell of a lot of charisma. He's what you call a good-looking rock star. So they would use the two good-looking guys to sell the records. But then it was the other two guys where they'd stick on the back cover. And I guess they opened for Kiss for a while, and they got to be buddies with Kiss. And Mm -hmm. Ace was talking to Blackie Lawless of Wasp fame one day. He goes, there's this band, Cheap Trick, that you've got to check out. Because they've got the two guys you would think they would have. Like the, the two good look of the two rock star guys. And then they've got these other two guys. <laughs> they've got these two weirdos in the band. And like, it works. They're going to be huge. He's like, and Ace was right. I'm like, yeah, Ace. I love you, Ace. Ace wasn't right about much. But I, mean, I think it was kind of obvious that these guys were good. I was going to say my favorite is the... You know, you were talking about that, the in color record. So you've got you've got Robin and Tom on the front on motorcycles, like right. big, you know, chopper looking bikes in color, and then you flip it over and it says end in black and white, and you've got Rick and Bun on I guess bicycles. Right. And they're they're just looking goofy. So the the cool part is the two of them understood what the deal was. You've got the two good looking guys, we're the goofy dudes. I mean, it, Carlos would wear ties. A, a short sleeve. He looked like a manager at like a 7-Eleven or something he did. back in the he day. He absolutely and did. I think they just embraced that. And Nielsen knew that he was a weirdo. He acted like a weirdo, but he was the one that wrote all the songs. So right. I'm in charge. This is my band. But it, I do think it was cool that they embraced that. And it wasn't like, no, 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 I'm I'm a rock. No, you're not, dude. You're you're a guy that can play the hell out of the guitar, can write a cool lick. But mm-hmm. you you know you know who the money makers are in the band. Exactly. You know, he always had that like seventies biker helmet like flipped up in the front. You know, you yeah. know, he, he never had long hair. He he was like short hair. And I think he's fairly bald, but he never like grew it out or ever. He always had right. the short hair, which was always went against the grain of rock and roll, always, you know. So he was always different, but he also always had like a funny look. Look at the cover of the first record. Look at the back of of in color, you know, he's He's playing up. He's not like, well, so I have short hair. So what? You know, he's right. like, no, look at me. I know I'm a weirdo. Look at me. And that was <laughs> part of their appeal. Plus, look, their first albums come out, what, 77? Their first two albums come out in 77. Heaven Tonight comes out in 78, ahead of this in Japan. Uh, and, of course, this release is kind of a cool story, too. And then, you know, the live album comes out. They also did, and they did Dream, Dream Police, which went triple platinum as well. But I think that had a lot to do with the fact that it was on the heels of this live at the Budokan mm-hmm. thing, right? Because yeah. Surrender was the new hit off of 
having tonight, that helped that a little bit. But because you're going to have I Need You and some other new songs on it, uh, like Dream Police, that really kind of helped propel that to, to triple platinum as well. And Bunny and Rick got to be on the cover of Dream Police. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a, a pretty darn cool cover, especially for like late 70s. They just kind of fit in the times very well. It's interesting, too, because they they had a uh, I saw a bit of a press conference before or for the Budokan show. And, you know, they get to say two words and then, you know, the Japanese translator is coming in and talking about it. And Rick's got it looks like it's something to eat, but it's not. It's a guitar pick and he flips it into his mouth like he's going to eat it. And he sticks his tongue out and it's on there. He's just acting goofy. And when it's his turn to talk, you can tell he wants that to be over with as quick as possible. Like, hey, <laughs> super excited for the show. Can't wait to see you come on out. You know, and then he throws it to Tom. He's like, you know, get this away from me. I don't I, I want to do goofy things in the back. I right. write out my eyes and everything, but I don't want to be the one that has to talk. And I think yeah. that's his that's his MO is he he, he plays a guitar. That's it. Yeah. I mean, he's something to look at. He usually has like checkers on or something gaudy that you're going to be able to see from a hundred rows back. He's famous yeah. for his, what is it? A six neck guitar. I mean, I don't even know how he holds yeah. it. It must weigh 120 pounds, but he's a heck of an entertainer, obviously a great songwriter and he's got great stories. If you ever hear interviews mm. with him, he is fun. He understands that rock and roll is it's yes, it's, it's business and it's work, uh, but he loves it, you know, uh, but back to their sound, you know, yeah. yes, I knew they, they kind of formulated in the late 60s, early 70s, finding their sound. They get signed. Tom Werman, who becomes their producer, and Tom Werman is amazing. You know, he he, he was he was an advertiser who got bored with it. So he sent a letter to Clive Davis at CBS Records saying, I, I, you know, I'd really rather be doing something like that than what I'm doing now. Uh, and so he got a job at Epic as an A&R man. And he discovered Boston Cheap Trick REO Speedwagon and Ted Nugent. Okay. Huge, huge. Yeah, he tons of money for that, right? It's over 20 gold and platinum records. He also brought Kiss, Leonard Skinner, and Rush to Epic, but they decided to pass on all those. So you can tell that he, <laughs> he saw talent and he knew music that we loved, you know. And because yeah. of that, he ended up working with other people we love, like Blue Oyster Cult, Crew. Twisted Sister, people that we know, you know, Lita Ford, you know, he, he, he did very well with that. But I think, and of course, he probably shaped their sound, but, you know, the fact that they're coming out at a time when punk music is all the rage. Mm-hmm. And that first album didn't do much. It, it, it didn't sell very well. And right. there's no, I mean, considering this is a live album made after their first three albums, it doesn't have one song from the first album on it. What does that tell you? Right, right. Right, Yeah. And so, you know, you're kicking around the Midwest and, you know, it's just not happening. Like, you know, you you can play clubs, I guess. You maybe had one or two songs on the radio, but like, you know, you can't understand why you can't break through. That has to be really rough. Like you, you know, again, you, you were sold this bill of goods. You know, you've got the talent you just haven't been able to hit yet. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, you mentioned they did open for Kiss. They opened for um, Queen at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Both of those, both of those uh, bands were huge in Japan. And I was thinking about what's that Cameron Crowe movie uh, singles mm-hmm. with the band citizen Dick is the band. And they're like, you know, blah, 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 blah. But we're huge in Belgium. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. We can't do anything here, but we're big in Japan, man. We're really okay. big in Luxembourg right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they've done very well in my 
new home of the Netherlands. They, they actually mm. do very well on the charts, better than they did in the U.S. here in the Netherlands. But again, one of those bands that big in the U.S., but didn't ever really crack it in the U.K. for whatever reason. Did they not tour there? Maybe not. Maybe they just didn't come over here very much, but it didn't translate to the U.K., but, but obviously they were big. But when you feel like, or when you hear something like hello there, which kicks yeah. it off, uh, I wouldn't say that's punk necessarily, but there's some punk elements to it, you know, and it's a, it's not even a two-minute song. It's fast-paced, it's got a riff, it's not real deep, it's it's kind of like the Beatles' birthday, or, or uh, it's uh, it's not that it's not that deep either, um, and it's it's not as cool as Oasis's "Hello," which I think is a killer way to to start a set. But off in color, "Hello There," it's it's a it's a fun raucous way. It's short. "Hello There, Ladies and Gentlemen." Not a huge drum solo, but there's a great drum flourish from Carlos on it. And I got to tell you, Carlos, he doesn't look it. Like if you put him next to yeah. John Bonham, you put him next to Neil Peart, you say, which one's, you know, a drummer? You say, well, not that one, right? <laughs> but he's killer on this, man. He absolutely slays it on this. And I was thinking too, I was thinking the same thing. I had a note about how, I mean, I, I've seen him before. He just kind of, like if you if you had the sound off, and you just watched him behind the drum kit. And you're like, what? What's this guy doing? Like, he kind of just is slumpy, mm-hmm. but he but he's playing it back there. He's he's doing he's doing what he needs to do, fitting into the song. But I was wondering too, when you think about in the United States, how many novelty hits were there that were not in English? I mean, I can think of maybe a handful. Right. This is an entire show in a language you don't understand or you don't speak. I won't say that you don't understand it, but you don't speak it. Right. And it's maybe, maybe because they're kind of straight ahead. Like there's not the, the lyrics are kind of, you know, it, hello there, you know, even come on, come on the next one. Is right. that easier for a person that doesn't speak that language? Like you can yell, come on, come on. Even though I really, maybe I don't really know what it means. And, and the songs are good, but they're not complex. Is that easier to translate to a, a, a culture that doesn't speak your language? Well, probably so, Jackson, because I want you to want me. I need you to need me. Mm-hmm. I love right. you to love me. I beg for you to beg me. Yeah, I, you can pick that up pretty easily. And then, yeah, for whatever reason, like you said, there's, they're touring with Kiss. They're touring with Queen. They're touring with people who do well in Japan. So I guess they start to have some success in Japan. Maybe mm-hmm. they didn't tour in Europe. Maybe they said, well, no, let's just go to Japan where we're having some success. Because I Want You to Want Me, which was released uh, a studio single off of In Color in 77, it didn't chart in America. It went nowhere. But it, it, it was a pretty big hit in Japan. Yeah, it went to number one in Japan. It was a number one hit in Japan. So on the back of that, they're like, okay, well, we, we can tour Japan and make money there when we want. And because the Japanese fans are so good to us, we'll go ahead and release a live album, but it's only going to be released in Japan because it's not. Mm-hmm. we're not going anywhere in America. We can't get any traction. We're not going to release a live album, although they should have just looked to their buddies and Kiss to know that that's, that's exactly that's what, I was what thinking. they should have done. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I found that weird because this seems like exactly the same deal. You know, They had a couple records out. Nothing was happening. They put out this live record. Everybody gets excited. Wouldn't you say to yourself, hey, let's at least put it out in the United States and see what happens? But you're right. Apparently, that was not the case at all. It was never intended to come out in the United States. 
And it's a very similar story. It's like they're touring their asses off. They're getting a great reaction live. Their mm-hmm. studio albums aren't selling. They're, they're not going anywhere. So that's when Kiss said, all right, we're going to try to capture live because great stuff is happening for us live. Let's try to capture it live and put that out. That comes alive. Platinum, double platinum, changes the fate of Kiss, changes the fate of rock and roll as we know it. So basically it's the same thing. So, okay, we're going to release this in October of 1978 in Japan only. Now, it says it's at the Budokan, Nippon, but I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that the audio for the Budokan that they recorded on April 28th and 30th, 1978, was just not up to snuff. Like, it, it just wasn't good enough. So hmm. they had to um, they had to change it. They had to use, was it Osaka that they had to use? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Live from Budokan is not actually from Budokan, but from Osaka, which was a little bit smaller show. Because there's, I think it's 12,000 people a night at the Budokan, which, of course, Gene Simmons will tell you they broke the Beatles record for the most sellouts in a row or something like that in the 70s. I don't know if Cheap Trip had that much success, but they were doing well. But part of that live album, and especially on I Want You to Want Me, which is the big hit single off of it, you can really hear them screaming in between. It's like, this is obviously already a hit there, which as right. a kid, because that's the one you hear on the radio in America, you hear the live version from Live at Budokan. Mm-hmm. And so you assume because they're going crazy, crazy in the background, you can hear the kids screaming like, oh, well, this was already a hit. And yes, there it was. But in America, it wasn't. So that's made the recording more special because you've got this fan base who's screaming, who's making a ton of noise. And between, didn't I hear you, didn't I see you crying? Wah, wah, wah. You can hear him like yeah. screaming that at him. It's like, wow, this is a big hit. They're, they're doing great. But they that's the only place they were really doing great. It's, it's kind of crazy, you know? Right. And and I always thought it was weird, the delivery at the beginning of that, because he, he intros it, I want you to want me. Why are you talking like that? Because they told him, they told him, speak slowly so that they can understand what you're saying. So, and I was, I thought that was kind of strange too about how there's no crowd work. And maybe they took it out, but right. there's, if you listen to it track by track, it, it, he intros a couple, but not really. But there's never like, hey, thanks so much for being here. We love you. You know, Japan has been great because they can't understand any of that. So right. don't, don't even bother. Just play the songs and go. But that's also part of what makes it iconic because they always play that on the radio. I want yeah. you to right. want me. You know, mm-hmm. big, big part of it. All right, so it comes out in Japan and it does pretty well. But then, of course, some American DJs start playing some stuff off of it. Before they know it, mm-hmm. they're getting something like 30,000 imports from Japan. It's so like, uh, well, okay, let's go ahead and release this. <laughs> In America, so it was actually February '79. So it's it's kind of the 45th anniversary of the release of Live at, at Cheap Trick at Budokan, but it's also kind of the 44th anniversary uh, <laughs> of Cheap Trick at the Budokan, kind of depending on where in the world you might be. But there's no doubt that this is what changed the game for them. This is the reason we know who Cheap Trick are. It's the reason they mm-hmm. were able to make 20 studio albums, including one as recently as, as 2021. And amazing. I mean, they've done over 5,000 concerts together and done uh, over 20 million in total sales. Kind of amazing. This is the one that made all of that possible. And it's it's interesting, too. They were talking about going to Japan and thinking, you know, they were going to have this kind of adventure there. But apparently they didn't get to do anything. Like they took, like there were so many people that were freaking out. They took them to the hotel and just said, not only do you have to stay at this hotel you can't go outside you can't even go to the window because they were saying like 
if the if the people see you, they were going to like you know try and back up like into traffic or cross traffic or something. So the band is like we were in this hotel with like the windows basically taped up. Right, it, it, we couldn't do anything. Like uh, Tom Peterson was saying, it took him I don't know ten or twelve years to even see the Budokan because wow. they got they were they were thrown in a van, windowless van, and driven into the thing, and then you're inside the arena. They didn't see anything. So this this kind of fantasy of this great trip to Japan was really just being sequestered and not really a whole lot of fun for the band at all. And I think that's that's happened to a few bands over the years if they, yeah. as they've gone to Japan, certainly to the Beatles, allegedly to Kiss. But uh, <laughs> you know, that's just what happens. But look, the results, I mean, millions and millions in sales, number one hits. This album went to number one in Canada, number two here in the Netherlands, number four in the U.S., and 13 overall for the year in 79. That's pretty solid to be the number 13 yeah. selling album yeah. in the U.S. But the U.K., only 29. They just didn't hmm. get it. They, and maybe hmm. they just weren't exposed. Maybe they just didn't care. Who knows? But they have a place, uh, they have a role to play in the history of rock and roll. And, and hey, congratulations on getting to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf. Let's go ahead and jump in here. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna, I know we're going to run out of time. We already kind of talked a little bit about Hello there. Mm-hmm. Opening track, kind of punkish, not very long. And of course, there's an intro. It's like, here's epic recording artist, cheap <laughs> trick. But hey, look, great way to start a show. Off of In Color, mm-hmm. fun one. And Carlos at the end, killer. Yeah. And and I didn't think this was a real song because it, it sounds like something you made up just crowd work, you know, hello, ladies and gentlemen. But it actually is a real track, obviously, or to me, it's obvious that you wrote this to be an opener for a show. Why exactly. else would you why else would you do that? And you're right. He does. Carlos does uh, rip it up at the end. Um, and yeah, you can hear everybody just flipping out in the crowd. They're into that. And a nice, you know, like you said, two minutes and 27 seconds, just kind of get it in, get it out, get the, the crowd warmed up and then into the rest of the show. Yeah. And part of that's intro. I mean, I think on the, yeah. on the record, I don't even know it was a minute and 50 seconds, you know, it was such a short <laughs> song. But you're, yes, designed to kick off the show, designed to get things going, designed to kick off the record. Mm-hmm. And it works great. It, it Perfect. And in the age of punk, which was starting to become new wave, but not quite, and they still have these kind of Midwestern hard rock values, uh, it's it's almost like a really fine line that they're walking very well. Yeah, they they I think they're they're called power pop is what they it's come to be known as. Yeah, they're it's straight ahead. It's I've never played it before, but it seems like it's fairly simple, like the the song structures. But it's it hooks you in. It's got a very high factor of wormholing it into your brain. And you know, you again, the the lyrics are just simple enough that you know you can you you find yourself repeating them after the song is over. That's right. Yeah. And then Nielsen obviously has great chord structure, great melody mm-hmm. structure. They got compared to the Beatles a little bit uh, during this time. Uh, okay. And, 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 and you know, I guess there's four of them and everything. But it, just from the way they did their song. And you can hear a little bit of it in some of these songs, you know. We, we might talk about that as we move on. 
Let's move to song number two, kicking off Killer with Hello There. Now it's Come On, Come On, the second song here. This is a good riff to me, but it, it sounds like Robin's a little drowned out to me on this one. Uh, is that the crowd just being loud? It, it could be. And again, you know, for 1978, who knows what the recording, you know, equipment that they had there was. They they didn't have a whole years and years of, of real high tech stuff to to get ready for this. You know, there's the we talked about the kisses alive and the stuff that they had to put back on there because like the cannons. Because right. they it, the mics just couldn't pick it up. Yeah, who knows what the mix is like? Did you really even expect to have this many people screaming that loud to um, account for? Right, you know, fair enough. And it's off in color. I mean, look, they mm -hmm. take nothing off the first album, Cheap Trick. Right. They take half <laughs> the songs off the second album in color that had the cool cover with the, the good-looking dudes and the motorcycles and the weirdos on the bicycles. So, and this this is another one, you know. I, this is not my favorite, but there's there's nothing wrong with it, you know. I mean, it, it fits in the set just fine. It mm -hmm. fit on that record just fine. It sounds like Rick more than Tom on the backing vocals to me there. The, the backing vocals are maybe missing a little something there. I feel like the two of them yeah. either do it together or it's mostly Tom and then sometimes it's both of them. Um, but, you know, again, it's... This is not my favorite, and I think eventually they, they wrote a song on a Latter-day album called Come On, Come On, Come On. I'm like, okay, you know, I guess you, you can't plagiarize yourself, I suppose. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, this is one that it, it's good. It, it keeps the momentum going. The sound mm -hmm. isn't great on the vocals, but, you, you know, hey, it, it's, it's got good momentum, and we're moving on to the next one, right? But, but the other thing, too, is about a live record. Like, what do you want? Do you want do you want to hear some of that? Like, or do you want them to go back in and re-record everything so it's perfect and then it's not really a live record? I don't know. You, like, you don't, you do, to me, you want to hear some of the imperfections that, yeah. that makes you, that makes it seem more live. The stuff that makes it live. The, the stuff right. that makes it human. Because humans aren't perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, so, again, not bad. Not my favorite. Let's move on to the third song, which is Look Out, which mm -hmm. I think it was done during the sessions for the first album. Okay. But didn't make the first album. And it's it's one of a few new songs that they basically put on this album. It's like the Japanese, like, look, you know, it, it's a Japanese only release. You got to have some new material on here. So I guess it's a it's one that they had around and they played live. It's a rocker with great chords, and it's one of a couple songs where Robin introduces Mr. Bunny Carlos on it, mm -hmm. and he's great coming out boom, right from the beginning. And yeah, he, he kills it on this.
Yeah, I was I was looking to try and figure out where it was from, and yeah, I didn't see it at all. So I didn't know whether it was new or whether it was a leftover track that they hadn't used yet because there was no information on it. So I'm guessing, yeah, it was a it was a holdout from something they had, but I guess they figured it fit into the set. And you're right, the drums at the beginning again. Wait a minute, that's the guy who's always has the Marlboro hanging out of his mouth with the right. tie and the that can't be the same cheesy thing. mustache and the glasses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks like a parking attendant, dude. I mean, yeah. no offense, but I mean, the, the, I mean, drummers are usually ripped and badass and crazy. Right. And that guy's just like you know driving the bus back there. You know, it's putting it's together. Kind of, uh, he's putting together TPS reports. He, he might be, as far as I know. You know, <laughs> cleaning onto his red stapler for all I know. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, it's it's not a real solo on this. It's more of a punk solo. And again. Yeah. I don't know if he's not exactly Jimmy Page, Rick Nielsen. He can, he does great chord stuff. He does great big fat riffs and he has some good melodic runs. I don't know if solos are really his thing. Certainly not the Page kind of solos right. that we've come to appreciate. And maybe that's why we were never huge into them or maybe they mm -hmm. didn't get that much super play other than a couple of hits. But again, this, this fits in well. It's, it's you know they're rocking through this whole thing. They don't have the flame yet. They they don't have one of those songs. I want you to want me is their love song, and that's not a slow sit down song. So <laughs> this thing is rocking, you know, and it it just kind of barrels along. Yeah, and that was kind of more of in fashion at that point in time. Like you know, you were talking about Jimmy Page was out, punk was in, short songs, no guitar solos. That wouldn't come back until probably Van when uh, Eddie Van Halen came out, you know, that would re-energize the the guitar god deal. So now, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just kind of short, sweet, and to the point. The one thing I always loved about Nielsen is that I did, he, he's got that eight-neck guitar or whatever, but the main one is like he played that, I think it's an Explorer from Gibson. Okay. Not that many people did, so he kind of always looked – even though he had the he had the biker hat on, he always had that. He didn't play a, he didn't play a Strat. He didn't play a Les Paul. He had kind of had his own look with that Explorer. Yeah, good point there. Yeah, and, and Jack Douglas, who I guess they say produced by Cheap Trick, but I think Jack Douglas, who's a legendary producer, also and worked with mm -hmm. Errol Smith and you know Kiss and you know so many people, Alice Cooper, I think that that we know. You know, he took a little grief as far as maybe some of the sound was off on it, but I, I don't know. I, I think overall, uh, this thing is a great. And, you know, they took it from different nights, I guess. They also changed up the order. And when you do that, you kind of worry about continuity or you know, making sure the crowd noise is right in there uh -huh. or whatever. I don't know. It seems to flow very well to me. All right. Track number four, Big Eyes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is another, if I'm not mistaken, this is another one off in the color. Old. Yeah. Yeah. This one's a little different. Big pounding beat to start, then big eyes. You know, he gets into this nice riff. I, I feel like he's got a little bit of, of draw the line in there from it, which he also completely lifted, 100% lifted, for the theme song to that 70s show. Um, it, it, I mean, listen to it. Mm -hmm. Like, that's draw the line. Why is Joe Perry... And, suing them right now with like the first mm -hmm. time I heard that. But I didn't really like that show. And actually, they're back on Netflix with that 90s show. Okay. Just a little FYI, because I love the 70s show. And obviously, yeah. most people kind of, that was a springboard from them to do bigger things. They're kind of back with their kids now, <laughs> next generation. So we'll, we'll see how that goes over. Because you know, 20 years later, it's always big. Like, in the 70s, the 60s rolled hat. 
But the 50s were popular again with ELO and Happy Days and stuff uh-huh. like that. In the 80s, the 70s, oh, God, we don't want to relive that again. But, oh, yeah, remember Woodstock was only 20 right. years ago. And the Beatles, you know. And so in the 90s, the 70s were big again. I don't know if the 90s are coming back anytime soon. The 90s are like I hope not. something they need to throw away, right? But, <laughs> that, that was a silly time. This, this one, though, it, it seems like. This one, the big eyes rocks a little bit harder. It yeah. almost seems like it's it, it could have been like a metal. It's a heavy song, song for them, yeah. But it's tuned up. It's like it's it's a little faster. It's a little lighter. But if you in the, if you just kind of flipped it a little bit, this could be a lot harder of a song. I'd never heard this one before until I listened to this record. It's it's a change of pace, and it's it's a nice after on the fourth track here. It's a nice change mm-hmm. of pace for the um, for the set list, but also again. Big eyes. He keeps saying that. It's great if you don't really understand what he's saying. You can scream (laughs) big eyes with him. Exactly. two things correct we should have listened to this more because i actually bought this on cassette at the Mm -hmm. bookstore at rollins college because i always wanted i "I want you to want me live i really wasn't sure it was that i found out it was cheap trick that i figured out was Uh the budokan then i saw it in the cassette bin and cds were expensive but cassettes were a lot less expensive so i right i bought it i probably put it in the car for a while and you know me, maybe I fast forwarded it to the I want you to want me. I don't, you know, maybe we didn't listen to it the whole thing that much. So A, we should have listened to it a little bit more back then. Okay. But B, I mentioned the influence of Aerosmith, who I'm sure they opened for a bit back in the day. I did see them open for Aerosmith around the honking on Bobo era. And me and my buddy Hunt paid way too much to go backstage and meet <laughs> Steven Tyler, get our picture taken with him, get up on stage, get our picture taken. At the microphone with his scarves on it. But we were walking around backstage and we're, you know, we're in a line of 40 or 45 people, right? So, and I'm somewhere in the middle. We're walking, walking, walking. Okay. And then over here, did it. And all of a sudden, out of a trailer right next to me, boom, door opens up. Hey, what are you guys doing out here? And it was Rick Nielsen. <laughs> and he couldn't open that up to one of the other 45 people. It's just he opened up right to me. I'm like, hey, Rick Nielsen. I stuck my hand out. He shook it. And he was the happy weirdo that you would expect him to be, you know. So he, he lives up to his reputation. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, he's odd, but he's super outgoing. He's Mr. Friendly, writes a hell of a riff, uh, and, and loves rock and roll and likes rock and roll fans, you know. So while this may not be my favorite song of theirs, it's cool because it's different. It's it's heavy. I mean, it's close to a heavy metal song, as, you, as you'll right. find, as far as that big, heavy riff. Yeah. Uh, they, can, they can draw it out a little bit there. So good for them. I... I you know, if I were to see them today, I wouldn't need them to play it, but uh, it has a good spot on this record. Yeah, and and it, it, it this is uh, Nielsen kind of rips it up a little bit. I mean, not really a true solo, but he he's heating up a little bit, and you can hear. I guess Xander is playing rhythm guitar, kind of the back and forth that they have for this track, anyway. Yeah, cool one. You know, don't don't hear yeah. this one every day. But then you go to Need Your Love. And this is one they can really stretch out. And this is one that would end up on Dream Police. So this is one, and this used to happen back in the day. It doesn't happen much anymore. But bands would go out, especially if you're doing 300 nights a year or whatever Peterson said they were doing, right? Right. You go out on the road, 
you make a record and then you come up with song ideas and you figure them out on the road and you maybe <laughs> debut them live, you know, and you play them live. And then when you have two, three weeks to make your next album, it's good to have a few that are kind of already ready to go. And, and I guess Need Your Love was one of them, but it's a long one. I mean, it was over seven minutes on the record and it was over nine minutes on this one. And it's the only one that was co-written by Tom Peterson to make it on at Budokan. But I, I like it. I mean, it's got some cool guitar runs in there. It's got a bit of a, you can hear a little bang of gone from T-Rex in there, can't you, Jason? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The, the, drum is, the drum is nice at the beginning. This is one of the ones that gets introed. And yeah, I've got a, a note here that said this appears to be unreleased at the time of the show. So that is weird that you would go to a show and here's a song you've never heard before. Okay, let's do this. But you're right. You know, you get to the point where it's like, we've got to do something else. We're going to lose our minds with 300 shows a year. But yeah, you've got to have that song that you can extend out to, you know, it's a little jam a bit and draw it out, you know. Correct. Yeah. A little filler. Was there more to this show than what what you see here? I mean, it's 43 minutes long, and I know there was no opener, so that couldn't have been the whole show. No, yeah, eventually in the 90s, they released Budokan 2, and then I think eventually after that, even later in the 90s, it was like, you know, the complete Budokan thing. And yeah, they did like 17, 18 songs or something like that, like a a normal set list. But remember, we had my buddy Tom on to talk about R.E.M.'s document, you know, when he saw them on the document tour, they played songs from Green that had not been recorded yet. You know, they, they had, right. you know, and, and again, back in the day, what was not such a crazy thing to play a song that you hadn't heard yet. But, you know, I guess it was supposed to go on Heaven Tonight, their third album after In Color. The, the album that came out right before this live album, the one that conti- that contained Surrender. But Tom Borman, he just didn't like it. He's like, nah, this isn't right. And it's a little long or whatever. And then he heard it live and he realized how good it was. And he's like, oh, sh- we should have put it on Heaven Tonight. That was, that was my bad right there, you know. But I don't know, it's kind of chill. There's some funky, there's a little Beatles bit for the choruses. I could kind of see a little bit of that Beatles mm-hmm. influence on there. But look, I mean, a lot of their songs are two to three and a half minutes. You're going to have to have a long one on there. And, and I, I like this one. It's, and the fact that it would have been new, again, it's another thing that helps propel the sales of Dream Police. If Dream Police, if this is going to be on Dream Police, then Dream Police. You've already, comes yeah, out. you've already heard it when it comes right. out. Yeah, you're already kind of prepped to 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 hear it. You know, what one thing just going back for a minute, I've got a note here that one of the uh, one of the guys, the Japanese A and R guys, mm-hmm. was saying that they were trying to sell Cheap Trick as a younger brother of Aerosmith. So, like, you know, you love Aerosmith, uh, you're going to love these guys because they're a lot the same. Wink, wink. So, yeah. It was interesting to hear this guy talk too. Well, not really because he was speaking Japanese. The translator talking yes. about selling records, like the 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 concept of you're the A and R guy, you have this record. Okay, how do I sell this to people? How do, you how do I? It? Yeah, correct. Yeah, in a, in a way that sells copies. So you, you've got this 
back and forth of the artists who like, you know, this is my art. I'm putting these songs out. And the the record company people are like, I don't care about that. I just need to make money. Which one of these can I put out that people will listen to so they'll buy this? So it's that back and forth of, you know, art versus sales. Yeah. 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 It's uh, what somebody said. What is it? Uh, it's songs for art's sake, but hits for fuck's sake. Let's go. Come <laughs> on. We need to, we need to, this thing like needs that. to make money. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's probably why, I mean, to sell in Japan, you know, Japanese releases so often have to have bonus tracks on them. Mm-hmm. When we were setting this up, it's like, no, you've got to have some new songs on there. It can't just be stuff from the first three albums. You've got to give us stuff that we haven't heard yet. And this kind of concludes the first side of the mm-hmm. record of the LP from back in the day. And so you wrap it up with a new one, you know, you, you've done songs that they know, although Lookout they, they didn't really know. And uh, you end up with this big long jam here. Okay, now you flip it over. Now look, for the most part, even on live albums, the first side yep. is usually the strongest. And the second side, it's not that it's not strong, but there's probably going to be weaker moments on that. This is completely the opposite. <laughs> All of these songs are, I won't necessarily call them hits, although some of them were, but these are great rockers. These were mostly hits. There's some great jams, great classic riffs in here. And I would take all five of the songs on side two over all five of the songs on side <laughs> one. It's Except for maybe Hello There, which has a striking resemblance to Good Night Now, but we'll get to that in a second. They start off with Ain't That a Shame, which again, like I said, in the 70s, all of a sudden the 50s were kind of big again. And Mm -hmm. for them to redo the Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, is kind of crazy, right? It's it's kind of like, why in the world? What the hell would you do that for? But guess what? It kind of worked for I was trying to figure that out too, because it, it was that a big hit in Japan back in the in, in the in that time. Like, why would you pick that one over anything else? But yeah, it's. I think it's. Well, I mean, I love the Fats Domino original, just the way he does it. Of course. But I guess that was that was Fats's favorite cover, and I think he. I got a note here that he actually gave Rick Nelson his Nielsen his gold record for that track. He loved it so much. Yeah. No, and I I have a theory on that. I mean, look. Pat Boone probably had a big hit with it, you know, back in the day, too. He's like, eh, damn white boy's getting more, you know, money than I right. am off this damn song, you know. Yeah. But at that point, it had been 23, 24 years since Ain't That a Shame mm. went up the charts. So, you know, of being on a triple platinum album, one that sold maybe five million or something like that around the world, that Fats, as one of the co-writers, is finally getting paid for some of that stuff. So... Not only did he like the version, and look, it, it's updated, you know, and it's harder, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously than Fats. But I mean, there's and then there's a big run up to what I would call the actual song. Like there's some really cool, flashy guitar stuff, some kind of Ace Frehley-ish even pull-offs and stuff like that. I, I do think it really suits Robin's voice 
very mm. well, to be honest with you. So it's obviously they didn't just redo it. They made it bigger. They made it brighter. They made it up to date. And it, it hit number 35 in the U.S., which makes it a minor hit. But it hit number 25 here in the Netherlands. So again, they're, they're big here. Everybody considers this one of their biggest songs, honestly. Even though it's not their song, mm-hmm. this is huge for them. The single is two minutes shorter than the album version because it's it's over five minutes on the record. So they shortened it down to like three. So they, they probably took out the fun jam. I, I seem to remember the jam, which makes it so cool at the beginning. They took all of that out just to right. do the Ain't That get to the, thing. Yeah. Just get to the meat of it. But, you know, also, too, you're talking about Pat Boone. That was probably just a... You know, at, at that point in time, white people wouldn't listen to black people music. So you have somebody, white guy, just re-record it and the song comes out. But what this is actually a tribute. Like they yes. obviously grew up with him. They love this song. They couldn't wait to play it. So it's more of a tribute to Fats and that whole era with Cheap Trick doing it, not just a cover. Yeah, yeah. They, they reworked it. They updated it. Pat Boone was basically like, I'm the white version of, of what you're not listening to. It's going to be the Correct. exact same thing, right? Yeah. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean, and a fun way to start off the second side. So it's something that you're familiar with, right? And something mm-hmm. that you can get into, right? So awesome. All right. So now you're going. And then technically before the end of that track, you hear, mm-hmm. I want you <laughs> to want me. And, and you're right. Now that I think about it. It's crazy that you would say it that way. It, it, you would never say that in the United States of America. Right. You know? right. But it's iconic. It's the way we've heard it for 45 yes. freaking years, you know. And it lets you know exactly what's happening. As soon as you hear that, it's like, oh, now I can turn it up. You Correct. know, the crowd's about to go wild. Right. You know, the drums are coming in. Like, here it comes, man. This is a great rock and roll song. I want you to want me. Well, and especially if you're if you're listening to it like on the radio, like you don't know what's coming, and then he gives you the intro. So yeah, you you kind of get in the mindset of I know what's going to happen now, and yeah, I mean it's rocking. But to me, this is like uh, riding the storm out from Ario Speedwagon. Ah, do you listen to the original? It's not anywhere excited as exciting as the different live singer. Version. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, that is a different singer, but it's just it's slower. Yeah, it's not the same song. Out. Yeah, no. And I think this is the same thing because I went back and listened to the original from In Color, and it's not bad, but it right. doesn't have that. It doesn't have that electricity like the live version does. And I don't think. And I have a note here. Does anybody listen to the original? Question mark. I don't think so. I think no. if you listen to the song, this is the one you want. It's absolutely the one you want. You know, for the longest time, you didn't hear Rock and Roll All Night, the original on the radio. You only heard the Kiss Alive right. single version of it. And a lot of those songs, I mean, you can name them, Watching You, Parasite. They don't sound nearly as good on the original LPs as they did live. Now, of course, they're punched up a little bit. I know it's a different story. But this is huge. And like I said, hearing the wah, 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 between, you know, him singing, didn't I, didn't I see you crying? I don't know. And it's just one of those songs. 
it just puts you in a good mood. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's like every little thing she does is magic. Like this comes on, it's like, all right, here we go, man. Yeah, yeah. we're in a good, happy mood now. And look, all over the world, biggest single ever in America, gold selling single, which I think at the time meant a million sales, not just 500,000. Went to number seven on the US charts. Went to number one in Japan, just like the studio version did off In Color. Went to number one here in the Netherlands. So they have a number one hit here in the Netherlands, number two in Canada, number three on U.S. Cashbox. So yeah. that's that's a big hit for them. Now in the U.K., our second biggest audience mm-hmm. only went to number 29. But we're trying so, to change that right now. Well, exactly. Go out and buy live <laughs> Budokan. And if you can find it, go to rarevinyl.com and use the term podcast to save 10% off your Cheap Trick records. Perfect. But no, I, I have loved this since I was a little kid. I, before I knew who Cheap Trick was, I, mean, I honestly I didn't know Cheap Trick sang it until we were in college. All I knew is when you hear that "I want you," yeah, I know it's coming next, and I know I'm turning it up. Yeah, and and, and it's just a, it's a great song too. And and uh, it probably I don't know it could have been ten years ago now. Dwight Yoakam had a uh, a kind of a country version of it, and it it was slower, but like. To me, I listen to the lyrics a little more on that version because it's not quite as frantic. And the whole thing about, you know, I'll shine up my brown shoes, put on a brand new shirt, come home early from work if you say that you'll love me. Isn't that what you want out of life? Yes. And and, and see, and you say it like that, you could really make it a country lyric when you sing, you know, you sing that, yeah. especially that particular lyric that right way. Mm-hmm. There, there was the part, what's the, the part in the middle uh, that's of the middle of the chorus, which is uh, hard to understand. I, I've, I've told for, for years... Didn't I, didn't I see you crying? Feeling all alone without a friend, you know, I feel like dying. Yeah. I couldn't necessarily make that up. He said, that's what it kind of sounded like to me as a kid, you know. But it's got to be feeling all alone without a friend, you know, you feel like dying. He's really kind of spitting through that pretty quickly on there. Yeah. But it's a classic. It's a fantastic hit. It's their biggest hit. It's like the breakup song from from Greg King band, you know, it's like, you may not know much from them, but you know this song and it is a classic, yeah. great one. And and propelled, I mean, it's the one that's kept them going all these years. You think they've played a show without playing this the last 45 years? Uh, no, no. People no. would riot if they if they paid to see Cheap Trick and they didn't pay, they didn't play this one. Right, so if they played 4,000 shows since the release of this song, then they've played this song 4,000 times. <laughs> You know, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe sometimes they had to open and close with it. You know, in certain places, I don't know, um, but it's it's fantastic. And then you go straight from that into surrender, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. again, it, it makes more sense now because they would play this song on the radio sometimes too. It's like right. this is the first single off our new album, and the song is called Surrender. The song came out this week, and the song is called Surrender. It was off. Heaven Tonight, the only song they played off Heaven Tonight, their new album on this mm-hmm. live record, which is again kind of weird. But this is again classic cheap trick. This has been immortalized in movies and stuff like that. And it's talking about, you know, a, a kid talking to their parents in the 70s, even though they're like of the 50s generation. Yeah. And here's this kid in the 70s trying to relate. And your mother's saying, Stay away from girls. You never know what you'll catch. And, yeah, <laughs> listen to your mother. She's really up on things. It's like, what in the world, you know? But uh, for the most part, people consider this their second biggest song, their second biggest hit. Yeah, and and you were talking about how uh, things kind of get 
used in different movies and everything. And it, they, it just be, it re-energizes the song and it, it introduces it to a new audience. If you played this for people today, especially uh, I mean, my son is 15, he would say Guardians of the Galaxy. Like it's it just ah. it it just sticks with you now. It's it's such a part of that movie that it's it it's had a whole new life again. Yeah, no, it's part of the closing credits yeah, of part two. Part two, right? I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think part three comes out this spring. And I, I don't go to many movies in the theaters, but I got to tell you, <laughs> I like these Guardian of Galaxy movies. I I really do. Yeah. Obviously, they've got a great cast. Visually, it's pretty exciting. I like it a lot, to be honest with you. I'm invisible. I stand perfectly still. I, brought, I can see you right there eating potato chips. <laughs> so, you know, not a huge hit for them. 62 on the Billboard chart. Yeah. Seven, 79 in Canada, where they usually do pretty well. But 12th in uh, in the Netherlands, you know, mm-hmm. the, my Dutch friends helping them out once again. But, you know, it was also used in like, I think it was used in the Detroit Rock City movie, the kind of kiss fun, okay. uh, you know, one night yeah. in 1970, whatever. Because Cheap Trick supported them a lot and they're buddies and stuff like that. And you hear in the middle of the song, and got my kiss records out. <laughs> like, they're paying tribute to their buddies, Kiss. Yeah. Great killer song, and to have those two back to back, your two biggest hits ever on your biggest selling album ever, that's killer, man. That's so cool. And we're all all right. I, I wrote that their, down. Yeah, yeah. That, be, that became yeah. part of their 70s show theme song, which, by the way, when I saw them open for Aerosmith, they played that fucking song. <laughs> And, and I was amazed. I was like, that's crazy. Do the, do the guys who wrote that silly song for Friends, I'll be there for you. Did they have to play that every night? I'm like, well, yeah, they probably do because that's the only fucking song of theirs I know. But Cheap, <laughs> Cheap Trick has others. You know, I, I'm just, I was surprised. I mean, I know it was, people had heard it because it had been on a TV show, but like, was it a single? Did they put it on an album? I don't even know. I, I, I was know. surprised to, to learn that, to be honest with you. I was surprised because I watched that show and, and it was a while before i figured out that was cheap trick i'm like oh hmm. I, I could hear it once you once i learned that you could hear it but at the beginning i didn't think that but again they got introduced to a whole new group of people yeah who maybe had never heard of cheap trick before and uh, robin zander's from wisconsin so when you said hello wisconsin which i thought was was probably <laughs> toe for grace or, or somebody like that saying that hey maybe it was robin you know maybe he's, he's you know he's proud of where he's from and yeah that. by the way our ra patty who is from wisconsin mm-hmm. when i told her you and i were doing a, a podcast she told her her husband brett who was her boyfriend at the time that mm-hmm. we were doing it and he said tell me when you do the cheap trick show okay this so, one's for you brett this one's for you brett you know <laughs> this wisconsin guys still love their cheap trick i suppose hi this is jeff downs you're listening to the ugly american werewolf all right, so then we go to the ninth song, or the fourth on the second side. It's Good Night Now, which was the, the B-side to Surrender in the Netherlands, the one that went okay. to number 12 in the Netherlands. And again, this is basically a reprise mm-hmm. of Hello There. I mean, it's basically the same riff, same song. It's just now this is about, all right, good night, ladies and gentlemen. It's, you know, yeah, 
Yeah, we're, we're show, winding yeah. down here. Yeah, and and, and I couldn't believe this was an actual song too, but it, it was the obviously the companion to "Hello There." Yeah, just a great way to end the show. Okay, we're we're done. We're out. This is it. Thank you. Go home now. Yeah, and apparently they did "Ain't That a Shame" after this live. Oh, an on okay. But before they got to "Clock Strikes Ten, but they decided now nah, let's put that at the first song on the second side and do it that yeah. way. In fact, so this is the B side to "Surrender." At least "Surrender" was was huge. How about Mike Damone in "Fast Times at Ridgemont High"? What about the charisma of Robin Sanders? Oh, that's kid <laughs> stuff. Kid stuff. Well, how about the tunes? I want you to want me. The dream police. Da -da 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 -da. Your mama's all right. Your daddy's all right. And he, he sings Surrender right there in the middle of the yeah. show. So I guess that's that's a couple of shows in a row that we've worked to Mike Damone and Fast Times Reach My High. Right? <laughs> I guess we're going to have to do that review at some point here. You know, Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of cool. It's a reprise. It's like we're kicking it off, rocking, and now we're going to come back. You're going to hear something similar. We're going to change it up because it's the end of the show. Hey. I, I I like it. I mean, it probably fits in better when you're loosen, looking at an 18 to 20 song set list when you're only mm -hmm. looking at 10 songs. Like, well, two of them are basically the same. It's a little weird, but <laughs> again, it's it's rocking. It, it's straightforward. It's not slowing mm -hmm. down. And, and it's familiar, obviously, because you already heard it 30 minutes ago or whenever. Right. Good for them <laughs> for, for making it work. And then you close with Clock Strikes 10. Okay. That opening riff is a doorbell from the 70s. Right. You've heard that before. It's a doorbell. Yeah. Oh. What I like is he, this is one that he does crowd work with me. He says, this is one I'm sure you all know. And I have a note that says, I hope so, because you just kind of put it out there that obviously everybody knows this one. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's rocking. And it, you can tell the crowd is, is jazzed up at this point, because this is basically the encore. This is they've, they've had a heck of a night. They've been hopping around all night. Although, you know, the thing is, in Japan, you could get at that point, because I remember doing a report on like a George Michael concert for like, I don't know, social studies or something like that in 1985 or something like that. George Michael went to Japan, played a show, and there were some people arrested for dancing. They were huh. dancing at the show. And I guess you're supposed to be very reserved, you're supposed to wait for them to finish, and then you politely clap or whatever. Didn't sound like everybody was adhering to those rules during I want you to want me, I'll tell you that. Yeah, um, I remember the, the uh, when the police did their reunion deal, What they filmed one of them one of the shows in somewhere in Japan. And yes, everyone's just kind of sitting there. It's a, it's a, almost like a uh, performance of a ballet or something right, where you're just kind of respectful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This, this didn't sound like that. This sounded like people were trying to rip them apart in the crowd. Exactly. And maybe they played up different parts of it. You know, they, they could have pumped this, the sound in that maybe came from it between the, the end of the show and the mm -hmm. encore. And they just kind of reel it. Who knows? Yeah. But, you know, you're singing about Saturday night, not coming home, staying out all night, cruising for some action tonight. You know, it's, oh, now it's four o'clock and da-da-da. So it's, it's rocking. Uh, but, I mean, it, it sounds like the crowd is way into it. And in a live album, that's what you want. You want it to sound right. like it's a great show and everybody there is having a blast. And that's why you want 
to play this record. It's why you're going to want to go see them live one day is because they're having a party during the show. Yeah, you, you were sad that you missed this. Yeah, so I don't know that song all that well. It's not one that was on my radar when I was a kid. But again, listen to the whole thing. L- listen to the whole album. And together, it all makes sense. It, it all sounds good. Yeah, it was, of course, it was one of the five that was off in color. So killer way to wrap it up. I mean, I guess it's the way they wrapped up their shows for the most part. It's interesting that they they did this. They put, they put Clock Strikes 10 after Goodnight now, but they moved Ain't That a Shame up. Don't know why they did that, but you figure if you were going to do that, you would have had Goodnight be the end of the record. Right. Um, so I, I don't know what the thinking was to that track listing. That's the way it worked, I guess. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit for you, because uh, Heaven Tonight, their third album, that came out in April of 1978. So that's coming up on its 45th anniversary here in a couple months as we're recording this. And the first single, Surrender, backed with Alvita that came out in June of 78, okay? Their second single was California Man, which I believe was a cover by The Move, written by Roy Wood. Uh, right. so, so they did a, they did that cover. and then But it came out in December of 78, which is a couple of months after Cheap Trick at Budokan was released in Japan. So okay. it, was, it was backed with I Want You to Want Me Live. So that's interesting. It was, it was, it was backed with a single that was not from this album. Right, <laughs> it, it was. It was not from heaven tonight. It, you know, it, yeah. And the studio version wasn't from heaven tonight either. So this live album, which wasn't released in the United States of America, gets the B side to California Man. By the way, California Man went nowhere for the most part. So if you could find that one, rarevinyl.com. Ah, uh, okay. I might be willing to pay for that because everybody wants the "I Want You to Want Me" as the A side. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, you could get it as a B side. What, three months before they ever released it that way? So, or something like that. So, it, it's just weird the way that that stuff kind of works sometimes. You know, we, we did the show on Quiet Riot last week about how they couldn't even get an American record contract at, at about this time, right? 77, yeah. 78. That's when they're, they're touring Japan and they're releasing records over there. Cheap Trick is finding a nice foothold over there in Japan, but they use it to make their way to superstar status in America. Yeah, and and I mean this this is probably one of the biggest like rock and roll underdog stories. You know, a, a band that was doing going nowhere in the United States, they go to Japan, put out this record, and then it kind of almost by word of mouth in the United States get just get huge, and that's how they or or they gain momentum and then write into you know rock and roll hall of fame members. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you, and you know what? They they never quit. I mean, I, I mentioned a little bit at the beginning. After Dream Police, which is a triple selling, triple platinum selling record. I'm sorry. It's platinum in America. It's triple platinum. No, no let's see. Though this says three million now. So okay, RII has it as platinum, but I see sales figures of three million in the U.S. I don't know what to believe there. Triple platinum mm-hmm. in Canada. That's for sure. Obviously boosted by at the Budokan. There's no doubt about that. Then All Shook Up comes out. Tom Peterson decides he's going to leave. And and then, you know, things start to change a little bit from there. It's it's gold. One-on-one in 1982 goes gold. And then they have a run throughout the 80s without Tom Peterson 
where they don't really have too many hits. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, it's not going gold. So when they come back, Peterson's like, I'll come back for a lap of luxury. Like, fine, but you've got to use outside riders on it. And they used yeah. a lot of them. I mean, they, they like they, they barely let these guys write any of their own, own songs. Even Rick Nielsen doesn't have that many writing credits on it compared to the fact that he wrote basically everything back in the day. But Diana Warren's on it. The great Holly Knight is on it. They covered Don't Be Cruel by Elvis Presley, which I remember was a bit of a hit for them after The Flame, because you yeah. have something to follow up to Flame. Flame went to number right. one. I think it was it's a bargain they made to get back on MTV and, and to get back up in platinum status and, and top of the charts and, and things like that. And I can remember them having a little bit of fun in the videos, especially with Bunny Carlos, maybe even <laughs> dressed in an Elvis jumpsuit on one of those, you know. But but then that was, for the most part, in our collective conscious. For the most part, that was the end of Cheap Trick. Busted came out in 1990, went gold in Canada. And then, you know, after Grunge came out, you know, Cheap Trick's not going to be the coolest thing in the world. And then they're going to be old. But, you know, to their credit, they kept going. After the flame, I'm sorry, after Lap of Luxury, they've made like 10 studio albums. Most people would have chucked it in. Like I said, they put out one in 2021. Eddie Trunk had a great interview with them because... Carlos, I guess, left in 2016 or so. And then Rick Nielsen's kid kind of took over on the drums. And I guess he'd been doing other things in the band before that. But now, like, there's an actual opening here. It's like, okay, uh, then we'll jump in and and you can be a part of the, the touring act. Because, I mean, generally speaking, the drummer is the one thing physically that you have to replace first. You're correct. And and I think there is some there is some bad blood or there was some bad blood between Carlos and the and the rest of the band as far as I don't know. It, it's probably money because it's always money. But you're right. That that's the one thing that you can't that goes first is that high energy. You know, you can't you have to you have to have that level of physical ability to keep yeah. that going. Yeah, it's the engine. I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't matter how great all the features on the car are. You know, if the engine doesn't run, you're not going right. anywhere. So, and it's physically difficult to do. And quite frankly, it's very rare that someone said, "Oh, well, the, the original drummer wasn't there, so I'm not going." Like right. original singer's not there, then that turns people off. But you know, you can't even see the drummer most of the time anyway. So, <laughs> as good as he was, look, I, I came into this thinking he is a weirdo. And, you know, they just kept him around because he'd always been there. No, he was very good. He was killer on this album. Mm-hmm. He really was. Yeah, yeah, Def- definitely underrated. And that, But I think that was part of his, to his credit, too. He always played it down, just kind of holding the holding the beat together. This does really showcase him where I don't think the studio records do. I, I agree with that totally, yeah. So, it, it, cool, they, they keep going. They keep doing their thing. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. Here's the thing. When you've been in the band for that long, and then after 40 plus years, you're like, okay, I can't tour anymore. Okay. Mm-hmm. I still have a legacy with this band. I still own it. I'm st- and the thing is, they create corporations. And then there have to be board members and there have to be officers and stuff like that. It's so like, you know, Steve Perry hasn't been in Journey for damn near 30 years at this point, but he's still involved in some decision processes, right? K.K. Mm-hmm. Downey had this huge falling out with Judas Priest, right? But 
he was still an officer of the corporation. You know, so he, he still has some kind of control over the stuff he was a part of. And yeah, it was sad that I, I think he had to take him to federal court. And it wasn't like he was suing him for, for $10 million or anything like that. It was like suing him for like $600,000. It's like, well, look, that's not chump change. And if, if someone owed me that, I'd certainly want it back. But it's like, you've been out of the band for a couple of years and that's that's all you get out of it. It's too bad they wouldn't they wouldn't just right. give that to him, you know, or yeah. whatever. And they did get it straightened out and they did play together at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I guess, kind of thing. But it's it's just one of those things, hey, it, it's shitty that it works out that way, but it's amazing they, they've had the run that they really have. Yeah, there's a, there's a note here that I wrote down. Foo Fighters, Smashing Pumpkins, The Rock Contours, any band trying to wield a Beatlesque melody to a power chord, all roads lead back to Budokan. This was the this was the blueprint of the scrappy American band who who dug in and made it kind of almost I don't want to say backdoor, but kind of like they they just never expected to to have the success they would have off of this off of this you know one or two nights that they recorded this thing. Yeah, and you think they spent those two nights wisely. They turned yeah. it into a hit record, which has allowed them to keep going now 45 more years. It, it's because of this record. It's because Correct. of that Budokan. There, there's no doubt about it. If they hadn't done that and it hadn't somehow gotten over to America, we wouldn't even know who Cheap Trick were. We, we wouldn't be talking about them now. They wouldn't have been in the heavy metal soundtrack, which, of course, we love the animated feature. It's a great success story. And, you know, for the most part, I mean, look, the band pretty well stayed intact, right? I mean, yes, Peterson left in eighty came back in 87 or 88, and then they ran more. And it probably wasn't easy through the 90s being Cheap Trick. And then they, they kept it going, kept it going, all the way till 2016 when eventually, okay, now the drummer has to go. Well, yeah, it's tough being a drummer in your 60s. Are you kidding me? Right. So continuity has a lot to do with the success of bands. They all have some writing credits along the way, but it's really Rick Nielsen doing the majority of it. Peterson also chipping in Xander a little bit, and and Carlos gets a few here and there as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like they were good friends for a super long time. Let's not judge him by the last seven or eight years, <laughs> you know. And honestly, I, do I really judge him past? Let alone nineteen eighty eight. Do I judge him past nineteen eighty or so? Probably not. You right. Know, to me, it's fine that they're this seventies band that had their moment in the sun, and they still get to they still get to do it. You wonder too if they hadn't had this record, if they, I mean, what was the original contract? Was it three records? Had they not done this, would they have done the third record? And then that would have just been it. You never know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, folks, that is our take on Cheap Trick's legendary At Budokan Live album with Robin Zander, Rick Nielsen, Tom Peterson, and Bun E. Carlos, members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And honest to God, I think the reason they're members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is thanks in most part to this record right here. It's the one everybody's got. It's the one the big single came from, their biggest hit ever. I want you to want me. And that was fun. It was a great album to go back and listen to. It's been so long since I'd heard it all together at once. It was just a little bit before our time. You know, it came out in the late 70s and we didn't start getting our first cassettes and records until the 1982 or 83 or so, something like that. So it's just a little before our time. But obviously it's got a special place in our hearts and a lot of rock and roller songs. I want you to want me. Everyone knows that. And other songs like Surrender, Ain't That a Shame was a big hit for them. Kind of brought back a little bit 
bit of the 50s and Fats Domino. Hearing those riffs, those punkish riffs in pure rock sound, I really like doing this one. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. And if you hadn't heard it before, or it's been a long time since you heard this one, go check it out. I, I think you'll like it. It's a fun listen. It goes pretty fast. Cheap Trick at the Budokan on UA Will number 117. Well, folks, as usual, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have to let us know. You email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet or DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're also on YouTube. We're also on Instagram. We might be on Facebook. I don't really know, folks. I'm doing my best. But for all our Dutch friends uh, who've been giving us some nice downloads, we appreciate that. You know, it's been great to be here in the Amsterdam, to live in the Netherlands for a while and, and meet so many great people and try to learn new culture. It's great to see Candy Dolfer at the Paradiso last week. She is amazing. She's still pretty foxy. Uh, it was a fun show. Paradiso is a neat place, right in the center of, of Amsterdam there. And I appreciate my Netherlanders' support. As usual, we are thankful to Pantheon Pods, of which we are a proud member. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, RearVinyl.com. Hey, go out there and find either it's the I Want You to Want Me single, either the A side or the B side. If you can find it or you get an old live at the Budokan, get it at RearVinyl.com. Use the code podcast to save yourself 10%. Still a lot in flux here at the Wolf, and obviously the Wolf's going to be doing a little traveling here soon, so I don't even know what we're going to release next, but I know that you're going to hit subscribe to wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you get them. We're everywhere, and if we're not, let us know. Tell me. I'll do my best to get it out there, all right? So until next time, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.